Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Compatibility. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette. I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com, and sitting next to me, as usual, is the shiny, happy senior writer, Jonathan Strickland. Hey there! And, uh... I think you said you had something to start out today's podcast with? Oh, yes, I have two things. Oh. The first is that I have to let our listeners know we have a guest producer for this podcast. Oh, yes. Yes, Mr. Matt Frederick, who uh, you can tell he's a guest producer because before he hit record, he said, take one. Matt is unaware of the fact that Chris and I always get it in the first take. So, Matt, <laughs> if you would just not even bother next time. Okay. Right. <laughs> but the second thing that we have to start off this podcast is... Listener mail. I feel like I've been sabotaged here. Listen, all of y'all. So (laughs) this listener mail comes from Ivan. And Ivan says, hello, Jonathan and Chris. I'm a longtime listener and a first time writer. And I think it would be fun to do a podcast on quantum computers. You could answer questions such as how do quantum computers handle algorithms differently than classical computers? Would I be able to put together my own quantum computer? When are quantum computers expected in the consumer market? I'm guessing about a decade. Bye, Ivan. 
You know what, Ivan? Uh, your definition of fun and my definition of fun may not be the same thing, but we're <laughs> going to tackle it anyway. And we're actually going to broaden it out. We're not just going to hit quantum computers. We're going to hit computers of the future. Well, this, uh, this podcast is full of holograms and, and funky colors and beepy noises. Many bothans died to bring us this podcast. <laughs> How many? Both of them. Yes. Both. Both both ends. <laughs> All right. So uh I guess um I guess first we can talk a little bit about uh sort of the, the state of computers today. Poor Chris is we're just, we're just Luke Chris is gone. Chris is gone. All right, I'm gonna keep going while okay, Chris just go on. Chris uh, I'll, I'll manages to, to to get it back under control. So classical computers. Uh we're rapidly approaching the time when most well, I, I guess most is probably too too big a word, but some engineers believe we are reaching a critical point in classical computers where we won't be able to get much faster than what we have right now based upon uh, the traditional method of building microprocessors. I'm guessing you're mentioning uh, in your head at least Moore's Law. Yes, I was going to get to that. So okay. Moore's Law, this is this all goes back to Moore's Law. And if you've listened to our podcast on Moore's Law, you know what we're talking about. If you More haven't, or less. Right. If you haven't, I suggest going back and listening to it because it, it was a pretty good one, as I recall. And uh, but in general, Moore's law, it was this this sort of observation that Gordon Moore made back in the 60s. Yeah, he's the uh, co-founder of Intel. Yes, so, I think it was uh, 1967 when he made this observation mm-hmm. originally. And he observed that over the course of about, well, the time varies depending on when you're looking at Moore's law, but we'll say 18 months. But over the course of about 18 months, you would see the number of transistors uh, uh, double on a square inch of silicon chip. You would be able to pack more transistors onto that chip. And there were a lot of different reasons for that. But some of it was technological development where you start finding new ways of making smaller transistors. Part of it was uh, economic because you could find cheaper ways to mass produce transistors on a, on a smaller scale. And um, – as a result, every 18 months or so, you would see microprocessors get twice as strong as they used to be because you've got twice the number of components on them. And uh, for years, people have been predicting the end of Moore's Law, saying that it has to come to an end because how could we possibly get smaller than what we're looking at now? Because right now we have uh, transistors, microprocessors out there with transistors that are on the nanoscale. Mm-hmm. They're just – you know, a few dozen nanometers wide, and that's incredibly tiny, so tiny you can't see it with a light microscope. Um, but eventually, we're going to hit a point where the traditional methods of making these microprocessors aren't going to work because we just can't make something that small that works with electrons. So at the end of the traditional cycle, which some say is probably within a decade, yes, um, there are new ways of creating processors that will sort of get around that by making them three-dimensional, basically stacking layers right. on top of one another, mm-hmm. which is, you know, cheating. Yeah, that's um, – yeah, <laughs> Not we, really, but – It's not really cheating, of course. I mean, we're being a little facetious I mean, there. yeah, I'm teasing, but – But it's it, – it would mean that we'd be sticking more with the classical computer than branching out and trying something really, really unusual and different. Um, and there are several different – approaches that some engineers are looking at, at as alternatives to classical computers, things that if they work out could be far more powerful and far faster than anything we've used up to this point. Mm-hmm. And perhaps, I don't know, eventually power us to the stars where we can make a prime directive and not mess with other people. 
You know, we made it to the moon with less computing power than a Commodore 64. Right. So, so you would think that, you know, with an Atari 2600, we could at least make it to Mars. So, yeah. um, moving on, the, uh, one, the first one we're going to tackle is the one that Ivan was asking us about, which was right. quantum computers. Yeah. So now your classical computer, it operates using, uh, operations on data using a set of instructions and everything gets broken down into bits. Binary. Binary digits. One or zero, on right. or off. Exactly. That's, so that's it. That's it. You got yeah. two choices. You've got tons and tons and tons of these bits put together to make these instructions. Um, you know, a computer might be running uh, bits that are or, or, or figures that are 64 bits long, which is doesn't sound like a lot. But when you add up all the different combinations that those bits can have, it's a lot. And of course, they're. That's not the upper limit at all. That's just an example. So quantum computers, these are different because they don't use bits. No. They use quantum binary digits or qubits, which I thought they used to measure the arc. But as it turns out, they're actually uh, data. See, I thought it was an awesome 1980s arcade game where you jumped around on a pyramid. No, that's Qbert. Oh, you're right. Damn. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> so qubits. What are qubits? Well, it's it's a special kind of bit, really. Um, quantum – we're going to have to go into quantum theory. I really didn't want to have to go into quantum theory because that's more of a science topic than a computer topic. It also is likely to cause us to have to go get the mop because my brain will explode. Yeah, I may have an aneurysm before I finish this, this, this next description. <laughs> so quantum theory. <clears throat> quantum theory is really uh, looking at systems that are really, really, really small. We're talking on the subatomic level. Um, you can also use it to describe some really, really big systems too, but we won't get into that. So on this small, small level, things do not behave the way they do in our macro world. Um, you, things that make sense to us because it's on a classical physics kind of a, a, a scheme, they don't the, – the rules don't apply on the quantum scheme. So to us, it may seem like things are breaking the laws of physics. They're not. It's just they're following a different set of laws. One of these laws that will come into uh, uh, importance with the quantum computers is that you can have a quantum element inhabit several states at the same time. And I'm not talking like states like Idaho and Montana. I wasn't going to make that joke. I'm just, I was just was going to head you off at the pass just in case. Okay. So bits have two states, zero and one, or on and off if you prefer. Now, a quantum bit ha- can be both a zero and a one at the same time and all points in between. It can inhabit all of those states. Now, what does this mean from a computing standpoint? Well, that means that when you're making a calculation – Instead of having to run one set of bits to do one calculation and then a different set of bits to do a different calculation, you could set one set of qubits and do all possible calculations within that, that, you know, realm of, of bits that you're using. And it can handle a lot of calculations all at the same time. Right. Instead of doing, you know, one thing at a time so, very quickly. For example, one of the, one of the big, uh, possible uses of a quantum computer would be to decrypt information and find out what people are actually saying about you behind your back. Uh, because cryptography, a lot of the, the cryptography we depend upon today uh, uses – it uses factoring. You, you take two really, really big prime numbers. 
you multiply them together, you get another number. This becomes the basis of your cryptography. And only by knowing the two prime numbers that were used to generate that big number are you able to decrypt the information. Now, for a classical computer to find the two largest prime factors of a large number, I mean, we're talking huge numbers here. It can take years, like millions of years in some cases, Mm -hmm. for a classical computer to decrypt or to to find those two factors. A quantum computer, assuming that you have one that's powerful enough that can run enough qubits, could find it in a fraction of that time. Okay. So that would totally freak out the NSA. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's a little uh, mind-boggling there, a little scary. Yeah, it's – um. Which is when you get into quantum cryptography, which again is going beyond the realms of this podcast. Right. I really, really can't get into it because honestly, people, I barely have a grasp on this concept. I've listened to so many professors and scientists talk about quantum computers, quantum physics, and it seems like a common element is that they all will eventually admit to not really being able to grasp everything about quantum theory. Well, this is pretty heady stuff. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of it seems to contradict what we know. For example, you wouldn't normally say that an object can be multiple things all at the same time. Uh, and there's another element to quantum computing that's kind of tricky. Why Why don't we have quantum computers now? If we understand quantum computing, why aren't there quantum computers out on the market now? There are quantum computers being worked on in labs. Um, there was one that was uh, reportedly up to 16 qubits a couple of years ago. But – why aren't we seeing them now? Well, one of the reasons is because it's really hard to keep a quantum computer in working order. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of different reasons for this. Uh, the elements tend to have a habit of interacting with things around their environment as opposed to each other. So then you get corrupt data. Um, yeah, they, because from what uh, from what I understand, everything stays the way it is as long as nothing touches it. But since we're talking about very, very tiny things and – Things bump into other things. Yeah, you have to be able to isolate everything and not have it interact with anything other than what it's supposed to interact with. Otherwise, your your results are not trustworthy. That seems problematic. There's also the um the 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 old uh, principle of if you observe it, you change the observed. Mm -hmm. You you know this this principle uh, often mentioned as part of the uh, the whole Schrodinger's cat problem. All right. Are you familiar with Schrodinger's? I am. I am familiar with Schrodinger. For those, who, cat. for those who are was not, alive, right? Maybe <laughs> until you open the box. Um, so Schrodinger's cat. This is a classic quantum physics problem. Uh, the the idea being that you have a cat shut in a box. There is a canister of poisonous gas that will release sometime between, say, five minutes and twenty five minutes. And there's no way of predicting. It's just gonna it's gonna pop open randomly sometime between five and twenty five minutes. If you open up that box within 12 minutes and observe the cat, it will either be alive or dead. But before you open up the box and observe it, it is, according to this principle, both alive and dead at the same time. It only becomes one or the other for sure when you open it and observe it. You have changed it. The reason behind this is it gets really kind of complex. But if you were to try and observe quantum particles – just by the act of observing them, by hitting them with a photon of light, you have changed the behavior of that quantum particle. Therefore, it is no longer doing what it used to do, and your measurement doesn't really matter anymore. You're not measuring what it was, what it had been doing. You're measuring what it's doing right now after you've hit it with light. Quantum computers have a similar problem. <laughs> you try and observe them, they become classic computers, and you've just ruined your quantum computer. 
All right, then. So you have to find a way to measure the results in such a way that does not disturb the qubits themselves. And also, all your results are coming out in sort of a, a probability as opposed to this is definitely the answer. You might get 37% chance that this is your answer. There's a 20% chance that this is your answer. There's a 12% chance that this is your answer. So not necessarily something you want when you want to find out what the temperature is outside. I was going to say it sounds a lot like the computer models that the uh, meteorologists use because they say, well, on this computer, I'm getting this. And on that computer, I'm getting that. So uh, in answer to your other question, Ivan, um, I found an article in Nature that suggested that, uh, uh, well, it was by, it was quoting Andrew Steen of, the University of Oxford in the UK. Um, and uh, quantum computers may not really hit the consumer market. They may be more niche products because of the way they do computation. I mean, it's not like we're going to be going to quantum Facebook and quantum Twitter to do our quantum email. Um, they're, yeah, not, they're really sort of high, high-end computing needs. Probably sort of not until products. we're eating all our meals in pill form. Right. <laughs> but uh, around 2020 is when he expects... To, to see that happen. So we, we should see them more uh, prominently. Assuming that engineers can get beyond the problems of, you know, the more quantum logic gates you add to a computer, the more difficult it is to control the the uh, the qubits, mm-hmm. and therefore the more difficult it is to get reliable results. You have to get past that problem first before you can actually build a quantum computer of really, of, of any meaningful power. Mm-hmm. Well, at least quantum computing isn't, what I originally thought it was, which was, you know, taking your laptop into a 1986 VW sedan. Um, wow. Wow. <laughs> Anyhow. So high-speed stuff has an opening, I hear. <laughs> now, um, the, uh, the, the other part of your question, can I build one? No. I mean, try. if you're, maybe if you're at the Stanford Research Institute or something, <laughs> if you're, if you're on one of these, these projects, then yeah, you might be. Yeah, you're not going to pick up the parts at Best Buy, though. No, it's not going to be one of those things that you order out of popular mechanics or anything like right. that. Right. So we can um, move on to uh, to different futuristic computers. Yeah. I was thinking of the uh, the DNA computers. Oh, DNA computers. Okay. Yeah. So deoxyribonucleic acid computers. Mm. They run on good old-fashioned DNA. Um, this is another one of those computers that could potentially – replace classical computers, at least in research institutes, just like um, just like quantum computers could. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you're talking about computers that can perform calculations on a parallel kind of scheme where they're they're running multiple uh, applications all at the same time, multiple uh, um, uh, computations, I guess you could say. Um, and it runs on DNA. And one of the things that it really has going for it is that DNA is kind of cheap. Because there's a lot of it around. <laughs> Turns out, what do you know? Spit in this cup. All right, we've got enough computing power for the next five years. Um, Excellent. Yeah, it's kind of cool. And there are a lot of different teams that are working on DNA computers. And they're really looking at molecular biology as a way of uh, of, of advancing computer science to levels that we can only kind of dream of right now. Um, again, this is stuff that is kind of – in the research phase, uh, it's, it's fairly recent. Um, the, the original idea of the DNA computer, I, I would say probably dates back to the early nineties. So, uh, quantum computers actually were theorized back in the early eighties, but, uh, we're still in that very early stage where people are looking at ways where they can harness DNA and use that as a coding mechanism for, um, 
for computational problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to add to that? Not to that particular topic. <laughs> I was going to bring up some uh, some computers of the very near future. Okay. And I was thinking that uh, you know, based on some of the other topics we've discussed on the podcast, I think quantum or quantum computing may not be what we see on our desktop in two years. Right. But what we see on our desktop in two years is probably going to be very small, light, portable, and may not even have a hard drive in it. Yeah. Because everything is moving to the web. I mean, memory and uh, memory and storage space are basically, you know, very, very, very cheap at this point. Right. And I think that's just going to encourage more uh, companies to offer cloud computing for storage and software as a service. Um, you're likely to see netbooks and tablets and, uh, you know, even l- – you know, cell phone convergence devices. Hey, I used your favorite word. Yay. Um, you know, so in, in the very near future, I, people, a lot of people, <clears throat> including the person sitting across from me, think that thinks that uh, desktops are going away I entirely. Think, I think they might become the realm of a uh, enterprise, you know, uh, method. I mean, you, you'll still see them, I think, in in school labs and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and corporate offices, but. Right. I, I don't think – and apparently our producer thinks he's going to have a desktop computer for a very long time because he's miming it. Um, Either that or he's itching in some spot. That, it could anyway. be. Well, he uses a Mac and that doesn't count. Hey. Um, everyone knows about my anti-Mac bias. Yes, so, your faux the, anti-Mac bias. So the uh, – the yeah, but I, the, we should have like the tech stuff drinking game. Yeah. Drink every time Jonathan says he has an anti-Mac bias. Drink every time the word convergence comes, comes up. up. Um, cloud computing would be another one. You yeah. guys would be tanked by now. Yeah, and, um, and then there's something else, magnetic RAM. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Other, other just little about things that, that are, are going to improve the, the day-to-day performance and portability of computing. Um, well, that was another one of the um, one of the elements of DNA computers is that DNA, of course, is incredibly tiny and you can pack um, enough DNA into a cubic centimeter of space to to get – I think it's something like – something ridiculous, like 10 teraflops of, of processing speed, which is pretty freaking fast. Yeah, um, extremely. It's a very powerful computer, especially when you consider that's one cubic centimeter. That's not necessarily all that you would have. Um, I was going to talk about one other kind of possible future computer. Okay. Optical computers Ooh. or photonic computers. Ooh, photonic. Yeah, these are computers that instead of using electrons as uh, the method of conveying information, that's the way classical computers do convey information if you weren't aware. Um, it's all through electrons. It's There aren't actually hamsters running around inside your computer no matter how old it might be. I mean, unless you've turned your computer into a hamster farm, which I guess you could do. No, photonic computers use light instead of <laughs> electrons. So little beams of light to turn on and off and, you know, it's just like bits. You've got two different states. You've got on and you've got off. And, uh, of course, light travels pretty darn fast. In fact, it travels faster than just about anything else we can think of. So you're talking about an, a high-speed computing system that uh, could – potentially leave classical computers behind. Again, you have to be able to build a an optical core, an optical CPU at the center of this computer. Um, I've read about a few different experiments that have tried to do this. Most of them involve um, cooling the CPU to a temperature not that much warmer than absolute zero, right. which is kind of impractical for the home. 
It, it seems reasonably <laughs> impractical. Yeah, we're and ta- probably fairly expensive. Yes, when you're when you're talking about maybe a degree or two above the temperature of deep space, uh, that's not necessarily something most of us can achieve, nor would want in our home. <laughs> hey, honey, where'd we put the liquid nitrogen? Right. Actually, you'd probably need liquid helium. I think nitrogen Ooh. would only get you down to. Yeah, because liquid helium, that'd be what they use over at the um, oh, yeah. Large Hadron Collider. Good point. So, but yeah, optical computers, that could be another another uh, future computer that will replace classical co- computers, at least in the research firm uh, area. So again, not necessarily something that we're going to see on mm. our desktop at right. home or running our Xbox games or anything like that. But, uh, but it wouldn't would be it be the, cool if it did? It would be. <laughs> I got, you know, you'd be like, oh man, it takes almost 0.0008 seconds for Firefox to load. I can't believe how slow it is. You know, we'd still complain. Oh, yeah, of course we would. It would be instantaneous to us, but it would be just slightly less instantaneous than it should be. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, well, I mean, that's those were the three biggies that I wanted to hit were um, quantum, DNA, and optical. Uh, Did you have anything else to add? No, not really. Awesome. Then we can wrap this up. And of course, we've already done our listener mail and I'm not going to torture you with a second one. <laughs> so everyone, uh, if you want to learn more, we have articles at HowStuffWorks.com about all this sort of stuff, including quantum computers, quantum cryptography, DNA computers. So if you really want to learn more about the future of computing, visit the website. We go into a lot more detail there and link to other really good uh, resources as you can – if you really want to explore this and learn more, I highly recommend it. The topics are so deep and, and dense, it's hard to really tackle them in the podcast format, especially since we don't have any real visual aids that we can throw in there either. So uh, I do recommend visiting the website if you're interested. And uh, as for us, well, I guess we will talk to you again. Really soon. Actually, I uh, didn't mention the address. Oh, the email address. All mm-hmm. right. I need to go back and do that then. Yeah, that would be take two. What? No. <laughs> I can't work like this. I'm still recording. All right. I can't work like Oh, fine. We're just going to take one. All right. All right. Listen, everybody. Listen. That was just to fake out all the people who aren't really tech stuff fans. So all you real tech stuff fans who have stuck around and didn't hit stop on your iPods, you're awesome. You're way better than those losers who already stopped the podcast. So if you want to tell us how <laughs> awesome you are, you can do it by emailing us. And our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we will talk to you. Hey, it, 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 what? I just wanted to point out, if you've got – we sometimes we get – Technical problems. People write us in with with actual tech support questions rather than how do quantum computers work, which is a much easier question to answer than what the heck did I do to my hard drive? If you actually have a technical support problem, you should probably get in touch with somebody who can help you with that in a more expedient fashion than we can. Also, we may or may not know what's going on with your particular system. So I would advise, you know, finding your brother or person who normally does your tech support and get them to help with those kinds of questions and we'll handle the how stuff works type questions. Now, I should point out that all you awesome people who stuck around, clearly you wouldn't have a problem to write in about in the first place. It's all those people earlier on who would be writing in. But of course, they wouldn't do it anyway because I didn't say the email address to them, did I? That's true. All right. Well, then that was a superfluous comment there. (laughs) Take that. Freud Laven. Freud Laven. (laughs) All right, then. I'm going to go and take a nap now. (laughs) And for the rest of you guys, we'll talk Talk to you. you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 
And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline 